This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello and welcome to the Francis Effect Podcast. My name is David Dalt. I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith, and I'm an assistant professor of Christian spirituality at the Institute of Pastoral Studies here at Loyola University, Chicago. I'm here with my friends Heidi Schlumpf and Father Dan Haran. Heidi is senior correspondent at National Catholic Reporter, a publication that connects Catholics to church, faith, and the common good with independent news, analysis, and spiritual reflection. Father Dan is Professor of Philosophy, Religious Studies, and Theology, and Director of the Center for the Study of Spirituality at St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, Indiana. He is also Affiliated Professor of Spirituality at the Oblate School of Theology in San Antonio, Texas. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss news and events through a lens of our shared Catholic faith. Father Dan and Heidi, welcome to you both. Since we last spoke, you both have been in Rome. And Heidi, I want to know from you, first of all, how was your trip and how was your tour with Father Dan taking you to Assisi and other places in the environs of the Holy City? Oh, well, it's, I'm just barely back, not even 24 hours yet back. So I'm trying to still adjust to this time zone. But it was an amazing trip for a lot of reasons. Obviously, I was there for work purposes. And we'll be talking today in our special Synod episode about the Synod recently concluded in Rome. But The part that I'm going to take with me, I think, for a long time were those days spent in Assisi. And I want to, first of all, thank the folks at America Magazine, which sponsored the tour that Father Dan was leading, for allowing me to take along for two days. I learned a lot about Francis and about Claire. I learned why everyone likes to go to Assisi, because it is a beautiful place. And it was very spiritually edifying for me in a lot of ways. So at one point, Dan, I'm going to bring this up, Dan joked with me when I asked some, some question. He said, boy, you really don't know a lot about Francis, do you? And the truth is, I really don't. Part of my upbringing was not a huge emphasis on saints. And even though I have a good friend who's a Franciscan, Dan, and actually a, a relative who was a Franciscan sister, I didn't know that much about Franciscan spirituality. But now I know a lot more, and I love it. So Dan, what was your perspective? You obviously were Assisi and Rome with all, with this group of 40-some pilgrims. How was it for you? Yeah, it was wonderful. I want to echo your shout out. I think the team at American Media was excellent in putting together the logistics and, and making the, the whole pilgrimage, the whole trip really smooth and effortless. And, and that created a space for 
as you said, Heidi, I think a lot of folks really enter into not only learning a lot and experiencing a lot and taking in a lot of good sights and a lot of amazing food, but also taking in a kind of spiritual renewal, an opportunity to reflect, to learn, to connect with God and one another. So yeah, shout out there. Shout out to our colleague, Sam Sawyer, Father Sam, who is the editor-in-chief of America. He came in at the last minute. This trip was supposed to be co-led by me and Father Jim Martin, but Pope Francis had other plans. And so about a month before this pilgrimage, he announced that Jim Martin was going to be one of the appointed synod delegates. So he was had responsibilities there at the synod, though he did join us for some portions of our Rome experience, which was nice. And so Sam stepped up and, and did a great job. And it was was two-thirds of a joke. A Jesuit and a Franciscan get on a pilgrimage bus. We just needed, we kept joking, we needed a Dominican, and then we could walk into a bar and, and fill in a punchline. But it was great, yeah. And, and to those folks who are on the trip who are listening, it was wonderful to be with you. It was, I do miss the camaraderie and the group. I think it was a really, really exciting group. You asked me, Heidi, what do I take away? I think something I shared often with a lot of folks in our pilgrimage was that especially the first five days. So we spent five days roughly in Assisi and five days roughly in, in Rome, and we called it Francis to Francis. So Francis of Assisi to Pope Francis with Ignatius Loyola, the bridge in between. And I learned a lot about Ignatius, and that's thanks to Sam and, and to his brothers and, and those in the Ignatian spiritual world in the Society of Jesus. But I also really appreciated a group of people who were, you know, because it's an America media event, more familiar, I think, with Ignatian spirituality and, and the Jesuit sort of world. So being able to share, like with you, Heidi, stuff that I can take for granted, both as a Franciscan, but also as a Franciscan scholar, details and, and stories and locations and significance that just seem natural or secondhand to me, being really important and meaning and moving to the folks that we were with. And so it helps me to see my own tradition and to see Francis and Claire and Bonaventure and others in, with new eyes. And so I'm, I was really grateful for that. I continue to be grateful for that. One of the things, Heidi, you didn't join us with, because I know you were heading to Rome that day, but we spent a day out at Laverna, which is the mountain where Francis of Assisi received the stigmata. It was a, a place of prayer and retreat. And the day we left, I'll just share this one little story. Because it, it shows my own nervousness in, in the planning, the months and months in advance, the planning where Jim Martin and myself and the team at America, wonderful people like Alessandra and, and Heather and Siobhan, as we were talking about where, where would we go, what would we do, what would we prioritize, we originally weren't going to go to Laverna because it's about, it takes a whole day. It's about a two-hour trip out and a two-hour trip back, and um, it's pretty remote. But I said, I really think this is a place we should go. And so no one else had been there before. Nobody knew they were relying on the Franciscan. And uh, the morning we left, Sunday morning, it was torrential downpours. And so we were leaving the medieval city of Assisi to head to our bus and everyone is just soaking wet. And I'm thinking, oh, this is going to be miserable. We're going to drive for two hours in this rain, go up to this very remote mountain. It's going to be cold and windy and rainy. And actually, as we journeyed east toward Laverna and then wound up this very high mountain, kind of switchbacks, the bus going back and forth, the sky opened in this valley beneath. We could see the sun and the clouds. It was absolutely gorgeous. And there were people there. I learned that a lot of Italians really like to visit Laverna as a place of prayer and, and kind of a pilgrimage destination. There weren't as many kind of foreigners there, which was interesting and special, I think, for us. But a lot of the pilgrims talked about that being a highlight of the first half of the pilgrimage that was very meaningful to them. And so 
that was really nice for me because I had my doubts. I shared with them. I said, I was like, oh, this is a terrible mistake. I'm <laughs> with the rain, especially we shouldn't do this, but it turned out to be wonderful. So it was a great experience. I'm grateful for it. So you mentioned the food, Dan, and I was able to have lunch one day with you and have that famous gnocchi with the wild boar meat that you talked about. And I certainly ate a lot of pizza and pasta and gelato while I was in Rome. But it was just so wonderful. So many of the pilgrims who were along with us on the trip, very deep, thoughtful people, readers of America, obviously, some of them also readers of NCR and other Catholic publications, many of them interested in our podcast. So hopefully we gained some new listeners as well. But just I also really appreciated the spiritual sharing, the celebrating of the sacraments together. It really was a beautiful trip. So, David, have you ever been to Assisi? I have never been to any place in Italy. So I am living vicariously. And I, I just love the way that you are describing this. So one of my best friends is a Franciscan and I teach at a Jesuit school. And so the way that you're describing this trip just sounds fantastic to me. I am hoping in the next couple of years to do a summer teaching gig in Rome with Loyola University Chicago. So that's on my radar. But until then, I'm just going to live through the both of you. And for the last two weeks, I've been recovering from COVID because my entire family got a case of COVID. So I don't have much to report other than I've been convalescing and writing and helping to work on some things behind the scenes with National Catholic Reporter, particularly for their weekly podcast called The Vatican Briefing. So I've really enjoyed keeping up with things with that. But I really want to get into our main discussions today. Listeners, what we have coming up on the program, we're going to be doing this in three segments. In the first segment, we're going to be reflecting on the kind of month of the Synod on Synodality, looking at that as outsiders. Then we're going to be reflecting on the document itself, the synthesis document that was produced. And in our final segment, Heidi talks to Christopher White from National Catholic Reporter, who's been on the ground talking to the Synod participants and reporting on this every day for the past month in Rome. So all that's coming up on The Francis Effect. Please stay with us. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt, and I'm here with my friends, Father Dan Haran and Heidi Schlump. Every couple of weeks, we get together to talk about news and events through a lens of our shared Catholic faith. And today, we're going to be devoting our entire episode to the recently concluded Synod on Synodality. And in this segment, we're going to be talking about what it was like for the past month to be outsiders to the process. And in particular, if you haven't been keeping up with what's been going on with the Synod, there was a media blackout of sorts where reporters were not allowed to speak to and the participants were not allowed to report about the events and the interactions that were going on within the Synod Hall, except in the most general sense. Now, there were aspects of the Synod that were public, so certain things that happened each week were available for reporting. But for the most part, the Synod was a bit of a black box. And so I, that's where I want to start with the both of you. When we think about the process for the last three years leading up to this, we've had 
experiences where people have been very transparent about the process. Lots of voices have been included. And then it felt like there was a record scratch at this point where suddenly things are not so transparent. And I guess, Heidi, I want to start out asking you, as a person who is a reporter, how did that feel to you? And why do you think that was done in this case? Well, yes, I think that did throw a wrench a little bit in the plans of some of the media in terms of their coverage of the Synod meetings that happened in October. So like you said, this is a years-long process, and the things that happened at the parish and the diocesan and the continental level were much more open and reported on. What it meant was that reporters had to work their sources in a way that often happens in journalism, which is you talk to people, but they're not speaking to you on the record or to be attributed, have their comments attributed to them. So it wasn't that reporters couldn't really find out what was going on in the hall, but it wasn't like in past synods where people stood up and gave interventions and they were all printed out and handed out to reporters at the press conference each day. Now, there was a daily press conference. I went to them every day while I was in Rome for that week, and different people were selected. Usually three or four people were selected to come speak to the reporters and then answer questions. And so Like you said, they would share in a general way what was going on, and then the reporters would try to ask specific questions, and they would try to dodge them a little bit. So we did get some information, and reporters were frustrated. But on the other hand, what I heard from some of the Pacific participants that I spoke to is that this really helped the conversation to be deeper and richer. And so we can think of our own experiences when we're speaking publicly how we maybe self-censor ourselves or are careful or at least thinking about how this might be perceived. And then on the other hand, when you're in trying to have this deep listening that they did in the Synod, I'm sure people were still thoughtful, but they didn't have to self-censor thinking what I'm saying might be dissected on the news tonight or tomorrow. So it had its positive aspects. Journalists still did their jobs. Technically, this this not speaking about it is supposed to continue after the synod, but I've already seen in the days since the document was that's released was released that people are speaking more openly about what happened. How did it feel for you guys? Well, Dan, I, I want to ask you about that because part of the reason for the kind of media silencing or the 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 request that participants not talk was to allow space for the spirit to move more freely. And as a person who's thought very deeply about the kind of role of the Holy Spirit in these sorts of events, I wanted to ask you about that. So do you think that was a legitimate move? And if so, how did you see that playing out? Yeah, I really like that you brought that up because it's something Pope Francis mentioned at the outset of the Synod back in the beginning of October. Pope Francis likes to use this term protagonist, right? Who is the main character? Who is the center of the story? And Pope Francis said that the protagonist of the Synod is the Holy Spirit. And so... I do think that it was the right call. It's interesting, like Heidi, being in this Catholic media world, I have a lot of friends who are journalists, and truly everybody seemed to be over in Rome, certainly everybody who who works in this area affiliated with any kind of wire service or uh, publication. And it's interesting, on one day last week, I, I bumped into three friends of mine from three different publications or three different institutions Uh, I'm not going to mention their names, but I asked them how they felt about this exact question, the the media blackout. And one said that they were especially frustrated, you know, said actually at one point they didn't understand why they were even in Rome. What's the point Um, that they could do what they're doing from any part of the world and that being there was just seemingly a waste of time. And and they were really frustrated. I talked to another person who has been covering the Vatican for many decades and 
this person's view was actually very compelling to me in the spirit of this pun intended, the Holy Spirit. And this person said that um, they seemed to really understand by the second week what, what Pope Francis was getting at. Because I talked to another journalist two weeks ago who said that they also were very frustrated by the, the media blackout and that one of the concerns they had is that Pope Francis just either doesn't know or doesn't care about how communication works in the 21st century and that maybe he's thinking kind of old school. But I actually think what this other colleague and friend of mine said is actually, no, Pope Francis knew exactly what he was doing. And that is exactly what Heidi was saying and, and what you were asking about, David, that if, if everybody at these round tables knew that the person next to them was going to run off and talk to this publication or that journalist or this website, then they might self-censor, they might edit. But if they knew that there was a, a, a kind of environment of trust and confidence, then people could speak more freely. And like Heidi said, I'm also aware, like people... Sources shared on background and very confidentially a lot of the things that were happening. But what impressed me is that it, that it didn't end up on websites. It didn't end up in print. And what I know, because I know things that have not been reported out, having having talked to Synod participants and others, is that there's some real tensive moments, there, but there are also some really important moments of grace and conversion and encounter. So I, I think that Pope Francis was brilliant in making this call. Didn't seem as clear at first. I'm definitely for it. I also think it's tied to something else that I think a lot of folks, I know we're going to talk about the synthesis document uh, in the next segment, but just looking ahead to that, that some of the frustration and disappointment that people are expressing around the document itself also was being reflected, I think, in the four weeks of the synodal conversations. And that is, we want something significant to happen. We want a, a headline-busting moment, event, process, change, instantiation of something. And that actually is not the, the methodology. That's not the system that's set up. Pope Francis set this up as a three-year-long process, right, with 2021 to 2024. This is, we're in the middle of this synod on synodality right now. We're not at the end of it yet. And I think that's really clear. And when we talk about the document, I'll talk a bit about what's innovative about the way that this document has been presented that will lead us to, I think, as the church universal, not just the 400 people who will gather again next October in Rome, but for the whole church to take this moving forward in the coming year, to continue this conversation, to continue the process of listening, to continue the process of walking together. Well, and that's one thing that in my less cynical moments I try and hold on to. Listening to Pope Francis and others who are talking about, because there have been several American bishops that have been, like Cardinal Blaise Supich and others, who have been tweeting repeatedly and on social media repeatedly, talking about the synodal process. And what they've stressed again and again is that it's about process, not product, and it's about culture, not content. And what we're trying to do is change the way that the church thinks about thinking about itself, if I can be weird and meta about it. So I guess I want to ask both of you, having observed this for the past month, do you feel like there's evidence of that beginning of process change and culture change? I'd be really interested in your thoughts about that. Well, that's a great question, David, and the answer is absolutely yes. Everyone who has participated or who was there observing or even people observing from outside of Rome can see that this did change the way we, quote-unquote, do church or our church. It's a new way of being church, is what often was said. And that's a good thing. I can't deny that the fact that such open conversations happened is not a positive thing. There was some joking after a while, and even 
complaining that about this overemphasis on the, the round tables. Is this all we're getting is this round table instead of everyone seated up on a dais and other people being spectators? And I don't want to diminish that isn't important. It is. On the other hand, there are places in the world, in our church, where this kind of listening has already been happening. And so it's not that groundbreaking. Certainly many of the circles that I run in. And by way of contrast, I was thinking about how while I was in Rome, I covered two events by the Union, the International Union of Superiors General, which is like the heads of all the women's religious orders. And they were having a special meeting that was a culmination of a years-long process on their part about advocacy. And they, women's religious orders have been synodal, without calling it synodal, for a long time. And certainly in this conference, that I, this two-day co- conference that I covered, they already were having this kind of deep listening and about issues that were not internal to the church, but external issues like climate and migrants and refugees and this sort of thing. So... I don't think we should downplay the advances that happened in terms of process. And certainly, I think that can be one of the things we can say at the end, at the end, although we're not, like Dan said, we're not at the end, we're only in the middle, that progress has been made. And the question then now is, how does that continue? How does that get taken back for this next year and going forward? Yeah, and not to, I don't think the point could be overstated that culturally, the Roman style is very, very different. Heidi's point about women religious, but it's not just women religious. It's frankly a different cultural approach to education, to conversation, to decision making that, yes, many women's religious communities have been really exemplars of. But the the process that's unfolding is something very familiar, David, to you and I in in higher education, especially. I'm thinking I'm teaching this afternoon a course with uh, colleagues. It's a a co-taught course. And my fellow professors and I, one of the things we do three times in this particular course is have what's called a world cafe discussion, which is basically synodality, where we have students in a a series of tables, they discuss a topic and have a conversation. Somebody kind of takes notes of that. One person stays there and everybody else moves to a different table and has another conversation with other people. That's exactly what's been going on. The Roman system is very traditionally didactic. It's very unilateral. So if you look at pictures, as Heidi alluded to a moment ago, on previous synods, it's basically four people sitting up front, one of which is the Pope, and 300 plus people sitting in kind of auditorium style seating, all facing the same direction. They don't have to look at each other. When somebody gets up to talk, their back is to the rest of the group. They're addressing just the four people up front. The Roman style of education is famously the professors get up and they read a text at you and everyone just is assumed to be passively taking it all in. I talked to a friend who's a Jesuit friend in Rome who mentioned that there's a new, there's somebody who's kind of stirring up the Jesuit Roman University, the, the Gregorium, that has continued like a lot of the other religious pontifical universities in Rome to maintain this sort of style of education to say, actually, now we want to have more conversation. We want to have more sort of dialogue, which seems to us so second nature, but is like antithetical to the culture. So I, I mentioned that because... I heard one person say over the last two weeks in describing what's happened at the Synod is something analogous to that old cliche, the journey is the goal, the journey is the experience. In other words, this portion of the Synodal meeting in person, the fact that they did it this way is incredibly important and is in fact groundbreaking. And I know that Cardinal Supich and Cardinal McElroy spoke with our colleagues at NCR um, this week 
about um, how they believe that there's no going back from this. And that's a good thing, actually. So I think in terms of the concrete topics that people have been rallying around and continue to, and I think there are important things to discuss and change needs to come in some of these areas. I think the fact that the conversation happens the way it has been happening is itself a major accomplishment. I'm thinking as you're saying this, Dan, about Cardinal Sarah, for example, and the infamous statement that it's the church's job to teach, not to listen. And I really like that there are so many cardinals and other luminaries of the church and lay people of the church who are starting to understand that what we're being called to here as a church is no longer the kind of didactic Roman model you're talking about, but a more conversational listening model. Yeah. And I'll just say, I think Cardinal Sarah may not be wrong if he understood what church means more theologically accurately, because the church is, as Pope Francis says, as Cardinal Grech and others have said in this synodal process, the church is, as Lumen Gentium says, as the church itself defines, the church is the people of God. The church is the baptized. So the church is meant to, quote, teach, but it is all the people, all the baptized, the census fidelium that's, that's involved in this. And I think when Cardinal Sarah says something like that, he thinks of old men in pointy hats. They're the ones who teach and everybody else listens. And that's not actually what, what is at the heart of this, right? We, we, the whole synodal process is recognizing that the Spirit speaks to and through and with all the baptized, all the people of God. We have different roles. There is teaching magisterium, teaching authority that bishops have, that the Pope has, but they don't come up with what they teach on their own. It arises out of the community of the faithful. Well, listeners, as has been said at the top of this segment, we are not at the end of the synodal process, but rather at another point of beginning. This next entire 11 months until next October are going to be still part of this process. So we will be returning to this again as observers, but we ask for your prayers for this process as we have been praying for this process. And we're going to continue our discussion of the Synod on Synodality in just a moment. You're listening to The Francis Effect. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt, and I'm here with Father Dan Haran and Heidi Schlumpf. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss news and events through a lens of our shared Catholic faith. This episode, we are looking specifically at the recently concluded Synod on Synodality. And in this segment, we're going to be talking about the synthesis document that, as of this taping, was released just a couple of days ago. We've all had the chance to read it and begin to reflect on it, but I would really like to talk to Heidi and Dan about their deeper thoughts about what this might mean and where this might go. One thing that I want to offer to frame for our discussion was a tweet that I saw from Christopher Lamb earlier this morning where he said, in this synthesis document, the progressives got the process and the traditionalists got the content. I'm just going to throw that out there as an initial foray to get your thoughts and what you're thinking about that as you're thinking about the synthesis document. Well, yes. So I think maybe what Christopher Lamb might have been referring to is some of the news that came out. I glanced and read quickly an unofficial English translation of the synthesis document. The official English translation is just out this morning. We're recording this on Tuesday. 
But my colleagues, uh, Joshua McElroy and Christopher White, had great coverage pretty quickly on Saturday evening of the release of the document. And our headline highlighted what I think a number of progressives might have been disappointed about. And part of that was not any call for action on the topic of women's leadership and specifically the inclusion of women in the diaconate, although that was definitely mentioned in the synthesis document and very much in the conversations over the past month. But it was in the further study uh, column in terms of where to go from here with that. And then the issue of LGBTQ folks and their inclusion was only mentioned briefly and lumped in with some other issues. And the fact that the terms LGBTQ were not used in the document was a disappointment to many, including Father Jim Martin, who commented about that. And that those terms had been used in the Instrumentum Laboris, the initial working document. So the inclusion of discussion of polygamy, there was a, one, a paragraph on that, led some to believe that the global South, and specifically Africa, where that is, is an issue, had a lot of influence. And again, that might be what Christopher Lamb was referring to. So I think we have to be careful about the term global South, because certainly in Latin America and South America, we have a, that's where some of the call for the inclusion of married men in some ordained ministries and women's diaconate is being called for. And I heard that a number of the more conservative concerns that were raised in the Synod came from not only Africa, but Asia and also from Eastern Europe. So the term global south maybe isn't always completely accurate. So that's the news of the document. And I'm, I've noticed you're both using the terminology synthesis document. We don't use the terminology final document because it's not the final document. And I think there's going to be a lot of other documents between now and next October. And then finally, at the end of next October, we'll have a final document. So that's what a lot of people have been chewing on over the last couple of days. What's been your impression, Dan? Yeah, I I am not as pessimistic as a lot of other people. I am very much in favor of the restoration of women's admission to the diaconate. I think that's, from a theological and historical perspective, there's plenty of evidence to make that case. I think there's a lot of great advocacy around that. Pope Francis, in his response to the so-called dubia of these five cardinals before the opening of the synod, said, hey, you know, something like, blessings of same-sex couples are is not off the table. There's He's probably not in a position to advocate, and I don't know that he could on, on his own without maybe an ecumenical council talking about expanding the sacramental definition of marriage. But short of that, I think there's a lot of possibility. I saw that Father Robitor, who's the dean of the School of Theology, Jesuit School of Theology in California, and one of the synod participants originally from Africa, said that actually people who are getting disappointed are doing so maybe a little prematurely. That's not his words. I'm summarizing his his response. And, and, and he said, look, everything's still on the table. And I think that's to your point, Heidi, about the fact that we've all been very careful to call this a synthesis document. It is a sort of, as I would call it, an instrumentum laborum in process, right? It is, is a li- living document. It's an ongoing document. It's a working table of contents. So it's, it synthesizes a lot of what has been discussed at the tables from across the globe. I I agree with you, Heidi. I don't think separating the West versus the rest or global North, global South is is sufficient. This is a very complicated church of a billion point two people, and geography sometimes plays a role, sometimes doesn't. I also think there's a difference between frustration about outcomes or the lack thereof and frustration about 
kind of language or nomenclature. And I will express I'm a little bit frustrated with the lack of the use of terms like gay or LGBTQ in the document because that had been used regularly across the board in the Synod Hall. So that to me is a little bit interesting and, and disappointing. But anyone who thought that in the middle of the synodal process, there would be major changes like we're going to start admitting women to the diaconate tomorrow or married priests are going to be a thing tomorrow as a norm, I should say, because there are married Roman Catholic priests, both in the 22 Eastern churches in communion with Rome and exceptions famously of those who convert to Catholicism who are ordained in like the Anglican communion or the Lutheran Federation and so forth. And that was a little bit of a footnote there. But I want to focus, too, on, so I think those outcomes, it's premature. The sin is not over yet. We're in the middle of it right now. So these are all talking points, and they don't have to just be things one agrees with or is on board with. In fact, the method of the presentation of this document is really striking, and it's reflective of the way that the table reports were done in the Synod Hall. So we see here convergences, topics for consideration, and proposals. So what we have in the presentation of this text is where was there a lot of agreement? Where was there a convergence, a kind of coalescing around ideas or principles or practices that everybody was, yeah, we can move in this direction. The thing, topics for consideration, these are live questions, right? That's what Father Robertor was getting at as well. This is an ongoing topic for conversation and it's in the, in the discussion's not over yet. And then proposals, this is what we need to take up in the next year. This is what we need to talk about in our faith communities. This is what we need to talk about in our religious congregations and communities among friends and so forth, or bring to prayer and reflect on our own. So I think what this document does is provide us with a kind of annotated table of contents, which is like an instrumentum laboris. It is not a, excuse me, it's not a final document, and there's still time for input and reflection. Dan, thanks for noting that convergences, further questions, and then proposals. Just a note, though, that in the process that they used at the tables, there was a, another part. They did convergences and divergences, and then questions, and then proposals. And in the press conference when the document was presented on Saturday night, Jerry O'Connell from America asked the question, what happened to the divergences? Why aren't those in the document? And I forget who was responding, but... Um, the response was, oh, well, we found that wasn't that helpful to focus on divergences. And it was a little bit of a, like my ear was listening there. It's saying we can't be afraid of divergences. And I, I get why maybe they weren't included in the document, but that was part of the process to note where there was difference. Well, and this really strikes one kind of structural and cultural disappointment that I have with the synthesis document. Because for me, as I've been reflecting philosophically and theologically on the process of synodality, one of the things that I've come down to as a bedrock is that synodality is about interruption. The capacity of those who have been excluded, the least of these, those at the margins, to interrupt business as usual at the center where the exclusions are decided. And we have had a month-long, very thorough process of listening and interrupting. And then at the end, we switched back to a parliamentary process. Let's vote on this. I came to Catholicism from Quakerism, and I'm, I've been thinking a lot about a little Pendle Hill pamphlet by an author named Barry Morley called Beyond Consensus, Salvaging the Sense of the Meeting. 
And in that little document, Barry Morley talks about how you let the Holy Spirit be involved in a process of decision-making where no one is excluded. And it doesn't look like a parliamentary voting process. It looks like a process of continual interruption until every voice has not only been heard, but has been included. We're not at that point yet culturally in the church, and I think that's where we need to be thinking about going. I think you bring up a good point, David, but I, I also think you might miss what is at play here, right? And, and this brings us back to where we are in the stage of the, the synodal process, which is, you're right, there is a kind of, there is a literal voting on this document, which is maybe a necessary evil, but I think it's also interesting, going back to what we talked about in, in, in helping people to understand how to think about this, synods, synods of bishops do not actually exercise any teaching authority. They have zero teaching authority. They're meant to be a consultative body representative from regions around the world. There are three levels of magisterial authority. There's ordinary magisterium that's exercised by local bishops only within the realm, the boundaries of their diocese. So Blaise Supich has ordinary magisterial authority in the Church of Chicago, but not in Gary, Indiana, right? It, do, it stops there. And the Pope has universal ordinary magisterial teaching authority. So he can teach to the whole church, right? Which is why at the end of Synods of Bishops, John Paul II, Paul VI, Benedict XVI, Pope Francis oftentimes issue an apostolic exhortation because that is a teaching document. It's an added to the teachings of the church formally. And that actually is something that is, is instructive to the people of God universally. The other way that there is uh, universal ordinary teaching authority is an ecumenical council, which this is not, right? So the Second Vatican Council's teachings are universally applicable. So I think it's important for us to remember, too, that, that it is never actually parliamentary. Even the final document of a, of a synod is voted upon by the participants, and it's a, a way we might think. I would, I would suggest us thinking about it as, do we agree that this reflects what we have discussed? And then it's up to the beauty of this synod on synodality is that instead of just listening to three to 400 bishops discussing amongst themselves, and under JP2, one of the criticisms was that it was already predetermined. He had already drafted what he was going to say, and they were just talking to themselves for two or three weeks. What Pope Francis has done is actually embraced the universality, right? So that eventually he is going to be responsible, whoever the Pope is, exercising universal ordinary teaching authority, is going to put out a document after the final document that is applicable to everybody. But before he does that, he has consulted at the local level, the continental level, the universal level, and then brought in lay people, men and women, bishops and others into this conversation to engage what has surfaced, you know, what has come up from the surface. So I think maybe that sounds too abstract, too theological for people, but I actually think there's a, there's a method to the madness. And it's the, maybe for the very first time, in, in our lifetime, or certainly in the last century or, plus, or more, has how teaching, church teaching, supposed to be evolving and developing. It's actually happening, and we're in the middle of it right now. I really appreciate that correction, but I, this is where my cynicism comes to the full bore, because I want to return to what Heidi said earlier about the reception of these processes and the ways in which People on the ground, laity, are looking at this and thinking about what is the result of this. And I think right now, the document, the synthesis document that exists, landed with a thud, and a lot of people were like, that's it? 
after all of it. And I, I, I completely get what you're saying on a theological level. And as a theologian, I agree with it. As a layperson, I'm incredibly disappointed with this document, with the cowardice of its language, and with the inability for it to actually name the violence and exclusion that the church is still doing to the vulnerable and the least of these. And so that, to me, is, is the point where we still haven't, as a culture at the highest level of the church, embraced what Pope Francis is really inviting us to. We're still being cowards in our voices and in our talk about this. Well, David, I want to acknowledge the disappointment that you're naming, and you are certainly not alone. So I'm in the process of interviewing a number of folks for a freelance piece I'm doing for U.S. Catholic Magazine, trying to look at where we go from here in the aftermath of this portion of the Synod. And people are disappointed. People are disappointed who are looking for women's leadership roles to be more concretely supported. People are disappointed about LGBTQ stuff. People are disappointed, even though it's mentioned in the document, about the way sex abuse has been handled in the church and has continued to be handled. The whole Rupnik scandal exploding in the middle of the synod and not being handled well with him being applying for reincarnation in Slovenia. There's still a lot of work to do. And I think it's okay to acknowledge people's disappointment. And I think we can do, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. So we can both be disappointed and still recognize that we've taken this leap forward in being a synodal church. And I think that if we just, if we focus a little too much on the happy talk about the synodal process, which is often what I heard in those press conferences, it's not going to resonate. People are going to lose interest. There's the, the lack of authenticity there. But if we drowned in our disappointment, we might miss the good news as well. I think I agree entirely that we, we have to acknowledge the disappointment, but I'm, I'm going to take a step back and say disappointment arises from false expectations or expectations unmet. And what I, I'm, I'm not here to apologize for everything in it. I said, I would say, and I am deeply disappointed in the language, right? Here's a small example. Every reference to the Holy Spirit is a male pronoun. The Holy Spirit is she, not he or his. And I wrote a column about this back in January. So check that out. So that, that is legitimate, I think, understandable disappointment. But the expectation that something was going to change in the middle of this process so dramatically was where did that expectation come from? And so I would say something that has also come up in the conversation and was happening in Rome among the participants was that expectations were not set appropriately. And part of that is because this little theology diatribe lesson I had a moment ago about magisterial teaching is the faithful don't understand what's going on, right? And so to the outside, like you're saying, David, it looks like Quaker quietism, or it looks like a parliamentary procedure, or it looks like this, that, and the other. And so that's a failure on the part of church leaders. And I would say in the U.S., in, in a particular way, the embrace or lack thereof of synodality has been all over the board. And that's the bishops are to blame for that. That is their role, right? So I I mention this because I have not lost hope, not because I think this is an awesome document. I do not. But I know what this document, where it fits into the process. And I think that's maybe a luxury of being an academic theologian. But it, my hope is that we can have these conversations. And I think, Heidi, you're right. The people losing interest, I think my fear is that people are going to become jaded and cynical and, and, and indifferent because they were expecting something that was never going to be delivered because it's not the time yet. So this issue of expectations, I think it, you've really hit on a key issue there. And David, you can speak about your own personal expectations too. But 
I will say that most of the activist types that I spoke to did have very reasonable and realistic expectations. After all, they're people who work within church structures. For example, in talking to a number of folks who were over there from discerning deacons, said they would were going to remain hopeful if women's leadership was even just mentioned in the document. So I get the idea for reasonable expectations. On the other hand, if you're an LGBTQ person, if you're a woman whose call to leadership has been unable to be fulfilled, you can't help but have expectations that your full humanity will be acknowledged, I think. And we can't tell people, don't expect that because this is how the church works. So I acknowledge that disappointment on the part of many people. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's why one of the things a number of Synod participants talked about was that their own expectations going into this were not appropriately set, that we have not seen something like this before. And so they didn't even know what was going to happen, right? This is also, I think, part of this sort of radical change that's taking place methodologically, which is they have been doing this since Vatican II one particular way in a unidirectional didactic way. And this whole process has been a new experience. And I totally agree with you, Heidi. I, I'm, I hope no one takes my remarks as like dismissing or minimizing people's frustration. I am deeply frustrated with all of the issues that were named and partly from my own experience and partly in solidarity with others. However, I'm with Father Robator, which is he's been part of this process. I'm with Cardinal Supich and Cardinal McElroy. I'm with others who have been on the record talking about we cannot allow ourselves to become, to let our disappointment in what we thought we should expect distract us or deter us from the work that is ongoing. We're in the middle of this. This is a midterm sort of document. It is not the final document. It is not a church teaching. It is just something to be engaged. And that energy you talked about, Heidi, that is what should be fueling people to continue the conversation and say, hey, you know what? This male language for the Holy Spirit is unacceptable. Let's talk about this. Let's report back up that this is an issue. The fact that women's leadership in the church wasn't adequately addressed, we need to keep talking about this. I think that the concern I have is like the reduction to cynicism and people checking out and saying, well, nothing's going to change. Well, it's not over yet. That's where I am on this anyways. This is one of the reasons why I am so grateful every couple of weeks to get a chance to sit down and talk to you both, because I come in with my own set of expectations and sometimes cynicisms, and in conversation with the two of you, you help me regain hope. And so I'm very grateful for both of these segments today, and I'm looking forward to our continued conversations over the next year about this. Uh, we're going to leave our discussion of the synthesis document here for now. Please stay with us. In the next segment, Heidi will be interviewing Christopher White, talking about the Synod and being on the ground over the past month. You're listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Heidi Schlump, coming to you from Rome, Italy, for this episode's interview segment of the podcast. Today's guest is my colleague, Christopher White, NCR's Vatican correspondent. Chris has been covering Pope Francis and the Vatican for two years for NCR, having previously served as our national correspondent. He also is the Vatican analyst for NBC and MSNBC News and appears regularly in other media. 
My favorite fun fact about Chris is that he has reported from all seven continents. Yes, seven. Chris and NCR News Editor Joshua McElwee also have been doing a weekly podcast for NCR called The Vatican Briefing during this month-long summit on the future of the Catholic Church here in Rome. This series of meetings, of course, is part of the years-long process of the Synod on Synodality. So welcome to the Francis Effect, Chris. Hi, Heidi. It's great to have you here in Rome and in these final days of the Synod. This is an exciting and busy time. (laughs) I know, and thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. My pleasure. So we'd love for you to give our listeners some overview about the Synod. Many of them have been following along. Of course, one of the differences we learned between this Synod and others is that the Pope asked the participants not to speak to the media about the content of what's being shared in the Synod Hall. So in the daily press conferences, like the one you and I were at today, Participants have mainly stuck to talking about the process and not about particular issues. So how has that affected your ability to cover the Synod? It's created a strange atmosphere this entire month here in Rome. The first day of the Synod, the Pope, you know, as you said, asked Synod members to fast from the media. And then the Vatican issued the Synod regulations, which said that members were supposed to both respect the confidentiality of the conversations taking place in the Senate Hall, but to discern what they could say publicly. Some members felt more comfortable and started giving interviews very hesitantly. Others have stayed quiet the entire month. So I'd say the main way of reporting and covering the Senate for me has been through daily interactions with Senate members that I know in the room and that I've met here in the course of the month who feel much more comfortable talking on deep background giving a sense of the nature of the things that were discussed, the tensions that have emerged, just even some of the stories about uh, how these conversations in the spirit and this new methodology have worked and the steep learning curve. But it hasn't been as transparent as past synods in some respects, because in past synods, the members would give their interventions to the synod floor, and those interventions, would they'd release them to the public. The Vatican would then release readouts of the small group discussions. And so I'd say it's been a much more, it's required more just on the ground, sort of quiet coffees, text messaging, <laughs> phone calls, just hitting the pavement every day. You know, I have to say, it's, I'm of two minds about the thing. As a journalist, it's been very frustrating to navigate these new regulations. And I still remain deeply skeptical of these rules. I, th- I hope that they change them in some capacity for next year. That being said, I think most people that I've spoken with inside the Senate Hall have said the rules have allowed a certain amount of candor and freedom and security for members to really speak their mind in ways that they haven't seen in past synods. So I do recognize there's a give and take there. Yeah, definite pros and cons. And I I would point people to your column. By the time this podcast comes out, it will have been last week in which you talked about some of the uh, tensions and even conflict that's been going on in the Synod Hall. But you can tell from that column that no one is named is giving you those background stories. And of course, we're recording this interview on Friday, October 27th. So this is the day before the expected release of the Synod synthesis document. So we don't know what yet is going to be in that document. But earlier this week, we saw the other document called The Letter to the People of God, which, as you and Josh reported, did highlight women's participation in the Synod. So even without knowing what's in the synthesis document yet, what do you think are going to be 
some of the takeaways so far of this process? Is it mostly about the process? Yeah, I think this synthesis document is going to be frustrating for a lot of people because really there are three major buckets that I've described to people. A bucket of kind of areas of convergence where there's broad consensus in the room, a bucket for areas of divergence where there's a noted conflict and tension uh, that remains, and then another bucket where people have said, we've identified these issues that need further studying. So those are the three categories in which this the synthesis document will, will operate. And I think the real test will come next October when this body comes back together here in Rome 11 months from now and makes some actual concrete proposals. And I think there we'll see some concrete propo- proposals on question when it comes to the hot button issues on questions like particularly the ordination to the, of women to the diaconate, perhaps some greater clarity on the questions of gay blessings, even things like the, the way in which lay people can contribute to the process of selecting bishops. I think that's something that's been discussed throughout the month, the real felt need for lay voices in that process and more transparency in that process. Because there are lay people that do get consulted, but we don't really have a sense of what that looks like at this stage. And of course, the, the other big question is abuse and the ongoing accountability and transparency that is required. The case of former Jesuit priest Marco Rubnik, who has been accused of uh, serial abuse, has loomed large over this synod and re- I think reminded people in a way that this is not an issue that is behind the church, but there, there's so much more work that needs to be done. And in a sense, is one of the main drivers of this whole synod process to begin with for the church to try to regain credibility that it's just continued to lose for decades now over its just disastrous handling of abuse. Well, I still have to ask about the hot button issues, though. And as I've done some reporting on and at the Francis Effect, we did have Kate McElwee on as a guest from Women's Ordination Conference in a past episode. So many have been calling for expanded leadership roles in the church for women and the topic specifically of women's inclusion in the diaconate or restoration, as many say, was mentioned specifically in the working document. So again, knowing that you haven't seen the final synthesis document, do you have any observations on how you think this issue is going forward? Is it going to end up in that divergence bucket, are you afraid? I think it's, it is both going to be in the divergence bucket and the further study bucket. That was, we had a member of the Synod during the third week of the Synod say that it's an area that she felt needs further studying. So I think that's going to be frustrating to a lot of people. In the 90s, the International Theological Commission look, looked at the issue. There have been two commissions under Pope Francis. Perhaps one of the recommendations we'll see will be for the contents of those reports to be made public. That's something that I know was at least expressed in some small groups. And so I think what we've seen, though, is it's, it's a question that, you know, I think some people want to say, oh, it's, this is a, a Western question versus a, a question that, that's divided the West versus the Global South. And that's just not the case. We have had members of the Global South say that they're fully supportive of the issue of women deacons, and we've had people in the West say that they're opposed to it. So I think it has a lot more to do with one's own ecclesiology than just where you're from. And I'd say it's certainly trending in the direction, I'd say, continued openness toward the restoration of the diaconate, at least from those here in the room. 
but ultimately it has to be something that the Pope was willing to greenlight himself. So another hot button issue and another one raised by the uh, Dubia Cardinals that you mentioned is involves LGBTQ Catholics and either greater openness to their participation in the church or even to blessing people who are partnered. So just the fact that these things are being discussed in some ways is rather extraordinary. And I know that you and Joshua have both reported on some meetings that have happened coincidentally or not so coincidentally right in the middle of this synod. So can you tell you tell us a little bit about those and what you think that might mean? Sure. I, I think it was quite significant that early on in the Synod, on, on the sidelines of it all, Pope Francis met with Sister Janine Gramic, one of the co-founders of, of New Ways Ministry, who spent, she spent uh, over 50 years ministering to LGBTQ Catholics, despite being banned from practicing this ministry in the Archdiocese of Washington, D.C., despite getting slapped on the wrist by the Vatican in, in the 90s. And she has persevered. And what we learned several years ago that was reported was that she entered into this pen pal relationship with Pope Francis, who called her uh, a valiant woman and, and praised her work. Uh, and this, this relationship has budded over an exchange of letters for some years. And so he, they finally met face to face. And so Josh and I were fortunate to be with her the morning after and capture her first reactions to that meeting. And she said it was an extraordinary time and a healing time for her and so many people that have been wounded over the years. So I think in that respect, it's quite historic for members of the LGBTQ community here in Rome to have such positive experiences during a month where so many of these things are on the table for the whole church to consider. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And we will link to that interview you had with Sister Janine in our show notes. So not everybody has been happy about those meetings or about the synod in general. Some have tried bringing up the issue saying this isn't a synod of bishops, really, if there are other people voting who are not bishops. And I noted, noticed today in the press conference that Father Timothy Radcliffe noted that he had voted in past synods, so that's not a very fair criticism. But a lot of the criticism also seems very rooted in people not being fans of Pope Francis and his reforms. So. Maybe you could talk a little bit about how this negative criticism of the Synod, what your observation of that has been. Do you think it's affecting Synod participants in the room? I'd say there is a small minority of people in the room that have been vocal, saying that because there are lay people in the room, it's no longer a Synod of Bishops. I think the line of attack has, to the Synod has been to attack it from a procedural point of view, to try to chip away at its authority by saying, look, there are some 70 people in the room who are lay people and they're getting a right to vote. How could you call this a synod of bishops? The Pope himself has pushed back against that notion in recent days. Cardinal Grech gave a, you know, what I'm told to be a very strong intervention earlier this week, saying because there are lay people in the room, it strengthens the authority of this because it expands it to the whole people of God. Um, so if, if you want to attack it on a procedural point of view, uh, I think it's important to remember that the Pope is the president of the Senate, and he gets to make the final decisions, including its procedures. So it seems pretty clear cut to me. So you mentioned earlier that we have another set of these meetings next October. And in the meantime, we have 11 months. So there has been some discussion about how this consultative process, synodality, is supposed to be continuing throughout the year. Any thoughts on how you see that playing out? What's going to be next? 
I think where it'll be really interesting to see is how it affects bishops' conferences around the world. I think of the bishops' conference in the U.S. who will be meeting in November. I think they have switched to now meeting at round tables, but they're still round tables of bishops. The bishops have a lot of consultors to each of their committees, including several dozen women. Someone may wonder if women can be at those round tables at the Vatican, why not put women in these round tables at bishops' conferences? You know, to our colleague and friend, Father Thomas Reese, has been singularly focused in the past week on what pastors can do to implement synodality. So that raises a fundamental question, but I also am curious about what happens at bishops' conferences. 11 months may feel like a long period of time, but it's really not if you consider all the work that has to be done. So I don't think we'll see too many major global in-person gatherings, but I think we'll see a lot of stuff being done at a local level that'll look very differently in Africa than it will in Asia than it will in in Mexico. So So I know many folks, including our listeners here at the Francis Effect, are watching this process with a lot of interest. But also I've spoken to a lot of Catholics, my friends, my family, who I think are having a hard time understanding like what this means for everyday Catholics. So do you have any thoughts you could share with folks who maybe don't do Catholic stuff for a living like you and I do? (laughs) Well, the nice thing about being reporters is we just get to point out the problems and ask the questions. We don't have to solve them for people. (laughs) But in in terms of what what does all this mean, this is where I think there is a misstep on the Vatican's communication guidelines, because you got a lot of people invested in the process and they now feel shut out because they haven't been invited in to a full extent throughout this month. And there might be some fatigue that is now set in. So I think some of the tasks will be pastors and local leaders, Catholic leaders, to recover some of that early energy and enthusiasm for the synod process, to take these 40 so pages of the final document and digest and make it in a way that's digestible for the, the average person in the pew. I think parishes are going to have to look at their own practices, such as pastoral councils, parish councils, um, and ways in which laity can feel that they really have a way of being listened to and have some say in the decision-making um, to show that synodality is working on a local level for, them to, for there to be any buy-in that it's going to happen. There is a broad consensus that you can't put the genie back in the bottle. and That might be the biggest outcome of the synod. They can no longer say, well, we've never done it this way before. The laity can't vote. Um, we can't have women at the table. The thing I'll leave listeners with is perhaps the story of Helena Gibson a Swiss pastoral worker who's been involved in the synod process at every level, starting in her own parish, and then at the diocesan level, then at the continental level, and now she's here in the room from, as a delegate from Switzerland. And she said that, look, four years ago during the Amazon Synod, I was standing on the Via della Conciliazione, the main street that leads up to the Vatican, and I was protesting for the right of women to have a vote. And now I'm in the room voting. And so for a church that thinks in centuries, four years isn't so bad. Thank you so much, Chris. That's been really helpful. Well, it's been a pleasure, Heidi, and a lot of fun. So thank you. Hello, this is David again. The full version of Heidi's interview is available on our Patreon site, patreon.com slash FrancisFXPod. For Heidi and Father Dan, I'm David Dalt. We'll be back in a couple weeks with the next episode of the Francis Effect podcast. Thank you so much for listening. The 
Francis Effect is produced by Sandberg Media LLC and is recorded remotely in Chicago, Illinois and South Bend, Indiana. It's edited by me at the William Adams Studios in Hyde Park on Chicago's beautiful South Side. The opinions of this program are our own and do not reflect the positions of any organizations with which we may be affiliated. We want to give a shout-out to the Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They are not affiliated with our program, but they did give us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it very much. Please check out their good work at slmedia.org. This show is made possible in part by our Patreon supporters, and if you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. Please follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Both of those are at francisfxpod, and our website is also francisfxpod.com. Please tell your friends about the show, and if you're here for the first time, we have seasons and seasons of episodes that you can go back to and listen to for your heart's content. We're so glad that you're here. Heidi and Father Daniel and I will be back in about two weeks. We're looking forward to being with you then. Thank you again for listening.